Ron Unz, welcome to the Kill Stream, sir. Hey, great to be here. Yes, yeah, good to have you. Uh, thank you for coming on today, and I appreciate it. And we've done a lot of interviews, but you're definitely one of the top ones that we've uh, secured here. And so I appreciate you being here. I know it's a, what is it? It's probably like four there, I think. So it's a little bit earlier. It's actually 4 p.m. Yeah, 4 p.m. It's 5 p.m. here. I'm actually in Mexico uh, in a place called Merida in the Yucatan Peninsula. So I'm almost on your time. But uh, they changed the time zones here uh, last year. It used to be Central, and then they moved it. They call it Mexican Standard Time, but it's mountain time basically uh but welcome to the show sir and uh, i always do this with new guests uh especially with new guests but I, I asked them to go into their background a little bit uh and give us a little history uh of what they do and you know how they got here etc well sure i'm a theoretical physicist by original training but about um oh really about 35, almost 40 years ago now, I ended up leaving the physics field and taking a summer job originally working, developing computer software on Wall Street. And after a few years, I left to set up my own small software company and eventually relocated back to California and was sort of involved in running it for a few years and then got much more involved in uh, politics and public policy, which is really what I've done most of the last 30 odd years or something like that. I've been involved in a number of uh, political initiative campaigns in California, most notably the campaign that uh, dismantled the old system of bilingual education. And uh, I've been involved probably the last 10, 15 years, mostly in doing writing and research and that sort of thing. So, you know, basically my background originally was in the sciences. But more recently, it's been much more politics and public policy in those areas. Now, I know you ran for governor uh, in 1994. Uh, how did that go? What was your experience with that? It was a very brief campaign. I mean, to be honest, I, I just was very unhappy with uh, Pete Wilson, the incumbent Republican governor of California. And so since nobody else was willing to do it, I ended up challenging him for renomination in the Republican primary. And I certainly didn't expect to win. I mean, you know, again, I'd never run for office. I, I'd never run for even uh kindergarten classroom president or anything like that. And so to come from a totally different background and start by running for governor of California, you know, it's really just more an effort to sort of get certain ideas out there. And I really did surprisingly well. I ended up getting over a third of the vote in the Republican primary. And uh, afterwards, I, you know, as I said, I mean, more of the activities I've involved in that have been more significant have been the ones, for example, with initiative campaigns or public policy efforts. I mean, my whole gubernatorial race only lasted six weeks. And so, you know, it's the sort of thing where, you know, possibly on a Wikipedia page or in a biography, it ends up factoring very high. But to be honest, it was really a very small sort of thing I was involved in compared to a lot of my other efforts. And, you know, again, it was only six weeks long. I never expected to win. Yeah, when you run for governor, yeah, that's how it goes on Wikipedia or biography. They have that in bold there. But you did really well for, like you said, you never run for anything before. Now, explain to us, I know a little bit about this, but to the audience, explain how ballot initiatives work in California uh, and maybe talk a little bit about uh, the bilingual one here, a little bit more, uh, what got you started on that, and then you guys won, obviously. But explain how they work in California, because I'm not sure everybody knows uh, how that goes in California. Sure. Well, I mean, California and probably about another dozen states have a process where somebody can put an initiative, a law, 
on the ballot and have the voters decide whether to approve it or not. In other words, it's a way to sort of circumvent the state legislature or the governor or any of the established groups in the state and get a law enacted. And uh, the I've been somebody very much opposed to the bilingual education system for really as long as I could remember. And it, it turns out I realized, I mean, there had been a lot of controversy going on in California where we had a system where, for example, California has a lot of immigrants coming from other countries, especially from south of the border, from Mexico. And we had a very crazy system entrenched in California and much of the rest of the United States where children were not being taught English when they went to school. In other words, you know, again, English is the language most people speak in the United States. And, you know, the only way you can succeed or move up in the world is to learn English. So you could go to college, so you could become successful. And America, California, and some of the other states had a very strange system where children, when they went to school for the first few years of school, were taught almost entirely in Spanish. In other words, even though it was called bilingual education, it wasn't really bilingual. It was Spanish almost only instruction. And so because of that, you know, large numbers of students would go through the public school system. Many times they were born in the United States. And by the time they were 10 or 12 or even 15 or 20, they really would have a very poor knowledge of English because they'd never been taught English in school. And so, you know, it was the sort of thing where their parents certainly wanted them taught English. The people in the community wanted them taught English. But the system of Spanish almost only instruction was very heavily entrenched in the public schools. And so what ended up happening was in, uh, I guess it was probably 1992 or 1993, I ended up reading some articles in Los Angeles Times about a group of immigrant Latino parents in downtown Los Angeles who ended up starting a public boycott of their own local elementary school because it refused to teach their children English. In other words, they were, you know, they were immigrants from Latin America, mostly from Mexico. They wanted their children to be taught English in schools, and the schools refused to teach their children English. So when you see stories in the newspaper about parents carrying picket signs around their school because it refuses to allow their children to learn English, you realize that the system's gotten very strange. And so as I investigated, I really discovered, you know, all the stories in the newspaper were true. It was a system really that had a very long record of failure for decades. And, you know, it was something very unpopular among the parents and the other people in California, but it was blocked in the state legislature. So, you know, in a sense, the system had become entrenched over decades. So I got together with a few other people and put a measure on the ballot to ensure that unless their parents requested otherwise, all children in California would be taught English from the first day of school. And as the polls came out, it showed it had overwhelming support, not only among most ordinary California voters, but among Latino immigrants in California as well. The, the early polls showed it had 80% support among Latinos in California, overwhelming support. And so, you know, ended up really being one of these efforts where you had nearly entire trenched political establishment of both parties united to oppose this law that we were putting on the ballot, but with almost all of the people in California behind it. So, for example, we were opposed by the chairman of the state Republican Party and the chairman of the state Democratic Party. We were opposed by all four candidates for governor, Democrat and Republican alike. 
We were opposed by nearly every union, every political slate, the editorial board of every newspaper, and we were outspent on advertising by 25 to 1. The other side spent 25 times more money in advertising. Yet we still won in one of the largest landslides in California history. The law was enacted. Three months later, the new school year began, and the vast majority of students in California suddenly were being taught English when they went to school. And it proved so overwhelmingly popular that people basically reversed their positions on it. And it, it's been very successful since then. In other words, it's the sort of thing where you had an entrenched bureaucracy that was preventing immigrant children in California from being taught English when they went to school. And you know, once the law changed, I mean, everybody was really very happy about that. And the end result was that the test scores of the immigrant students who were in this English-oriented program ended up increasing by 30%, 50%, even 100% in the next three or four years while the limited number of students who basically were kept in these bilingual programs in a few districts that were very stubborn ended up showing no improvement at all. Not only that, but the founding president of the California Association of Bilingual Educators, who'd been a lifelong supporter of bilingual education, publicly admitted that he'd been wrong for 20 or 30 years and that bilingual education didn't work. And we ended up getting very nice coverage in the national media. There was a big front page story in the New York Times describing how successful the program was. It was on CBS News. It really was all over. So, you know, it was one of these things where an entrenched law backed by small but energetic special interest groups had remained in place, even though the vast majority of the people affected by it immigrant families, and the rest of Californians all wanted their children taught English when they went to school. So, I mean, that was basically what happened. Yeah, and I mean, for people who don't... Well, no, that's a great story. It sounds like an unmitigated W there, when. Uh, and for people who don't know, it's it's harder to learn language. I'm trying to learn Spanish, but uh, it's harder to learn a different language the older you get. Uh, and so if you're taught it at a younger age, it's, it's a lot easier to pick it up. I guess just f finishing off on that, what were the reasons that they were against it at the start? Like, wh What were the justifications they used to, to like oppose it? It was a very strange thing. I mean, it was the sort of thing, you know, a lot of people said, for example, oh, the teachers unions are the ones who back bilingual education. But actually, once I began the campaign, the largest the leadership of the largest teachers union in California called me in and we had a lunch meeting. And they basically said they'd been trying to get rid of bilingual education for decades, but it was hopeless. It was too strongly entrenched. The supporters were too determined. I mean, you basically had the only people really strongly in favor of these bilingual programs were the bilingual teachers and the bilingual administrators and the bilingual academics. And they were a very small group. It was probably only a few thousand people in the state of California, but they were the only ones focused on the issue. And everybody else was basically sitting at home watching television. So in other words, in, I ended up doing probably about 100 debates during that year, during the campaign, you know, television debates, radio debates, live debates. And anybody who attended the live debates would assume we had 99% opposition in the polls because virtually everybody who attended the debates was a strong supporter of these bilingual programs that didn't work. I mean, they were all the bilingual teachers and the bilingual administrators. It was basically one of these sort of crazy doctrines from the school, public schools of education 
that had gotten so heavily entrenched, it was almost more like a religious dogma. And, and I'll, I'll tell you one thing. When I tell you this, you won't believe it. What you said was 100% true. It's obviously a lot easier for young children to learn a new language than for people who are older. And that's why everybody thought, you know, they should be taught English when they start kindergarten. But all the theory of bilingual education proposed by these academics was that the older you were, the easier it was to learn another language. That's what they all believed. I mean, it's crazy. I, I, I did, at one point I did a debate at Harvard University and, you know, I was debating, for example, the Harvard professor was one of the leading figures of bilingual theory. And she pointed to her five books that she'd written, all of which proved that the older you were, the easier it is to learn another language, which is just nuts. So when you have a theory based on something that's crazy, it obviously doesn't work in practice. But, you know, we have a lot of things in our society that don't work very well, and they just get very entrenched. And they're very difficult to get rid of. So, you know, it was the sort of thing immigrants were for having their children taught English. And in fact, the head of the Latino caucus in the state legislature called me in for a meeting. And he himself said that you know, a lot of them basically felt it was important that Latino children be taught English when they went to school. But none of them wanted to take on the vehement, the very fanatical bilingual activists who, you know, basically were very determined to stick with the thing. So, you know, once you put on the ballot, it won overwhelmingly. But getting it on the ballot, getting it through the state legislature would have been impossible because of the lobbying efforts of all these bilingual activists. Yeah, and that's one of the benefits of California is you can just kind of put it directly to the voter. I mean, for good or bad, there's just about initiatives too. But uh, a lot of the good stuff that's gotten through is through ballot initiatives. Uh, and it kind of cuts out the bureaucracy, it cuts out the entrenched Democrat a lot of times. Although the Republicans were stronger back then too. Uh, but nowadays it's almost one party out there kind of. Uh, but okay, so, and by the way, that just blew my mind because now it's taken for granted that you know, you're able to learn a language easier, younger. Like that's the, everybody knows that now. Uh, but it's just funny that you say that back then they were trying to say the opposite, which is not true at all. Speaking as someone who's trying to learn Spanish, uh, and it's not, it's not as easy as, as you think. Uh, now, okay. So where did you go from there, uh, in your political career? Well, I mean, uh, that obviously was one project I was involved in. And then I really ended up spending uh, some time working on a, a more complex software project a few years after that. Basically, oh, and one thing I should say is after getting rid of the bilingual programs in California, I ended up sort of assuming that with all the great media coverage we'd gotten, New York Times, national media, it would quickly spread to other states. But, you know, nothing much happened. And so then a few people in other states actually asked me to come in and help get rid of the programs in those states. So we did initiatives, for example, in Massachusetts, in Arizona, and then also uh, one of the districts in California was very determined to resist uh, you know, implementing the bilingual program. So I helped some of the people there recall their political leadership from office, you know, for resisting the bilingual program. And, you know, when we ended up winning, uh, give an example, that was, that was actually the city of Santa Ana. Now, Santa Ana is the most heavily Latino immigrant city in the United States. 80%, it was about 80% Latino back then. There was one political leader who was very heavily entrenched in that city. He was sort of really the most powerful political figure there. And he'd sort of done a backroom deal with the bilingual activists. So he supported the bilingual program and refused to implement the initiative. So some of the immigrant parents there asked me to come and help them recall him from office. 
And it was a campaign, you know, dominated the headlines in Southern California. And in the most heavily Latino city in the United States, he ended up losing by a 40-point margin, four zero points. And so when that happened, I mean, people realized that these bilingual programs really were not very popular among Latinos. And the same thing like Massachusetts is one of the most liberal democratic states in the United in the country. And we ended up winning our initiative there by about 30 points, I think. So, you know, it was the sort of thing... Once I helped these people get rid of the bilingual programs in these other states and make sure that all children were taught English, these programs, as far as I can tell, really faded out in the entire country. Now, afterwards, I ended up spending quite a few years involved in a software project to digitize the archives of a lot of old American magazines, opinion magazines like The New Republic, The Nation, Harper's. The Atlantic, you know, basically a couple of hundred publica publications going back 150 years, which otherwise were totally unavailable for people. And that ended up taking probably the first few years of the uh, of the century. In other words, probably from about uh, probably seven or eight years, starting around the year 2000, I was heavily involved in that. But I was also very concerned about, for example, the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. I was very much opposed to the Iraq war. And I ended up then getting involved in supporting a small publication that was set up called The American Conservative, originally founded by Pat Buchanan and a couple of other people. And I ended up helping to fund them. And partly because of my involvement with, with them, I ended up starting to do a lot of writing on public policy issues. And so in the last 10, 12 years, I've really spent a lot of my time doing a lot of historical research and public policy writing, especially a series called the American Pravda series about how so much of American history is very different than what I and I think most of us have always assumed it to be. And part of my um, involvement in that came because of my digitization project. In other words, I digitized the archives of all these old magazines. And sometimes I would go through and, you know, just look at the table of contents, read an issue here and there. And I, I gradually realized that so much of what I'd assumed was the history of the United States was entirely different from what had been portrayed in the leading publications of that era. So, for example, when you see headlines, series of major headlines in the magazines of, say, 1910 or 1920, and those headlines deal with issues that you've never heard of in all your years of reading history books or going to college. You really start to realize that, you know, the world is in many ways very different than you'd always imagined it to be. The Internet was starting to become obviously much more of a powerful force at that point. And I started, you know, coming across many issues on the Internet, just, you know, stumbling across an article here, an article there that supported that same perspective, that so many of the things I'd assumed to be true because of the history courses I'd taken in college, because of you know just the reading I'd done in newspapers and magazines were actually very different than I'd imagined it to be. And, you know, as that started happening also with the aftermath of the uh, Iraq war, you know, with the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq, even though virtually every media publication I'd been reading at the time had declared that obviously there were WMDs in Iraq. Things like that really made me start to, you know, be a lot more skeptical of the received narrative I'd always acquired from the newspapers and magazines I'd read. I mean, I, you know, somebody, I've been reading the New York Times 
now for probably probably going on 45 years now, you know, from the beginning of college. And, you know, so we're talking about something when you've read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and all these major newspapers for so many years, absorbed what they said and, you know, certainly realized that they were somehow skewed or dishonest in certain ways, but still assumed that the basic picture they presented of reality was roughly accurate. And then you start discovering all of these enormous events of the past are very different than you'd always imagined them to be. You know, that's some that's sometimes something that takes quite a while to digest. And, and that's really what I've been doing, especially over the last five years, doing a lot of writing on many of these historical issues, research and writing showing that much of what we assume to be true in many cases is very, very untrue. And, you know, the world is very different than most of us assume it to be. So what what do you think the reasons are for that? Um that it's it's not exactly accurate or it's a certain presentation and you dig into it and it's not the same. Well, I mean, you know, that's why one of the reasons I called my series American Pravda is that, you know, when I was growing up, I, you know, my view of the Soviet Union was a very conventional one that, you know, basically it was a sort of incompetent, corrupt country run by a small elite that really didn't have the interests of its people at heart. And, you know, it stayed, the leadership stayed in power by, in a sense, lying to the people, by totally distorting the history of the country. I mean, Pravda, even though it means truth in Russian, was a byword for dishonesty and, you know, misleading perceptions in the United States from the time I was growing up. And what I gradually realized was that so much of the American media was in many ways sometimes almost as dishonest as all of us had always assumed Pravda was during the long Cold War. I mean, it's the sort of thing, partly it's when you come across one or two dramatic examples of total dishonesty on major issues, and you convince yourself that those examples are entirely true and that the media has been lying to you for your entire life on those matters, you then naturally become very skeptical of so many other things. And for me, one of the major turning points was it was uh, really in the 2008 campaign, you know, with uh, Biden, uh, with um, Obama running against John McCain. I ended up just clicking a link on a website and I stumbled across an article that really made the most outlandish claims about the Vietnam War. In other words, basically, the article claimed that hundreds of American POWs had been abandoned, left behind in Vietnam, and ultimately killed with the knowledge of the American government. In other words, you know, I'd obviously seen the Rambo movie in the 1980s, you know, I heard of it, obviously there was the whole POW MIA movement, but the magazines and newspapers I read had sort of ridiculed it, it was some crazy conspiracy, it was total nonsense. And here I read a very detailed, very, very well-documented article claiming that was all entirely true. Now, you know, when you stumble across an article on the internet that makes outlandish claims like that, you know, naturally you wouldn't tend to believe it. I mean, how could that one article be true when everything else you've read would then have to be false? But then I noticed the name of the article. The article was written by Sidney Schonberg. Now, Sidney Schonberg had been one of America's leading Vietnam War journalists. He, he, then, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Vietnam War. His account of the events was made into the movie The Killing Fields, 
that won an Oscar and became one of the classic Vietnam War movies. And then he later on, he became one of the top editors of the New York Times. I and mean, we were talking about one of the most prestigious, well-regarded journalists in America. And he was the author of this amazing expose. And, you know, when I checked around, it was just unbelievable that something like that could appear in print. And nobody was talking about it during the campaign. Not only that, but the reason he finally published that article at that point was that the man behind the cover-up of the POWs was actually Senator John McCain, who was running for the presidency at that point. I mean, it was the most amazing scandal you could imagine, published and heavily documented by one of America's leading Vietnam War journalists, and nobody was willing to discuss it. I ended up then contacting a few people, checking with them privately, and one or two people who had background knowledge and thing confirmed it. They said, yeah, you know, it's well known within these circles that the story is basically true. The Vietnam POWs were left behind. A movie like Rambo was actually true when all of the articles I've been reading in the New York Times or the Atlantic or the New Republic were entirely false. And nobody in the media was willing to cover it. So what ended up happening was, since I'd become the publisher of the American conservative at that point, I ended up about a year or two later getting in touch with Sidney Schoenberg, persuading him to let us republish his article. And I did an entire cover symposium on that amazing scandal. A lot of people then said, yeah, you know, they have private information. That's certainly true. But nobody in the media was willing to report it. So we're talking about really one of the most amazing scandals you can imagine, heavily documented produced by one of America's greatest journalists, the Pulitzer Prize-winning top former editor at the New York Times, and nobody in the media was willing to cover it. So when something like that happens, when a story that big is ignored by everybody in the media, you really become very, very suspicious about what other stories might be out there that nobody is willing to cover. And that really was something that led me to take a lot of these other issues much more seriously and begin doing detailed research on them. And, you know, the, the, what I probably have to say is that, you know, of the conspiracy theories, if you want to call them that, floating around on the internet, as far as I can tell, 90% of them, probably 95% of them are basically nonsense. They're false. But the 5% or the 10% are true are absolutely dramatic. And that's what I've spent a lot of the last few years doing, writing up, researching and writing up many of these individual issues, some of which have been very heavily covered in the past, some of which are well known to small circles, but many of which have really received much less attention than they deserve. And it's the sort of thing, when you find out one or two of these dramatic stories is true, you obviously become much more willing to believe that others might be true as well. And I'm sure there are many others that I haven't come across yet as well. But I mean, we're talking about something when so many lies have been told about so many things for so many decades in the American media. You know, the only way you can describe the American media is by calling it our own version of American Pravda. Now, you, you let into, so JFK, that's a pretty well-known conspiracy theory, quote-unquote. I'll ask that in a second, but I was looking through your uh, America Pravda uh, article on the 1990s, uh, actually, this morning, and a couple other ones, too, but uh, specifically this one. Of course, I'm a 90s kid, I guess you could say, uh, so, you know, it interests me a little bit more, maybe. Um, what about the Oklahoma City bombing? What, what about that don't we know, or, or has been misrepresented? 
Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, at the time, I really didn't pay much attention to the Oklahoma sitting bombing. In other words, it you know, seemed pretty much just what media reported as. In other words, you know, a lone nut had, fanatic nut had blown up the buildings. And it was only really probably a few years ago, maybe about six or seven years ago, you know, I ended up, for example, one of the people heavily involved in a lot of these conspiracy riches, someone named Michael Collins Piper, who used to work at the Spotlight, which was sort of an alternative, uh, conspiratorial oriented DC publication. And I was reading uh, several of his books on other subjects. And then one of his, one or two of his books dealt with the Oklahoma City bombing. And he really seemed to make a very strong case that the true story was extremely different than what had been presented in the media. It was really only probably a year or two ago that I finally ended up reading through some of the books published at the time that I'd never really paid any attention to. And the case they made for a massive cover-up, in other words, it's not entirely clear to me who was responsible for the bombing. In other words, there are various different theories floating around who was responsible, why it occurred. But there does seem to be a great deal of evidence that the official story is false. In other words, that there were bombs inside the building, that there was a massive cover-up of what happened, and that you know a, it p- very possibly was sort of a sting operation organized by the ATF to sort of, you know, strengthen their political positions and save their budget that ended up getting out of hand. You know, there are different groups involved than might have been involved in making it a real bombing for their own reasons. But in fact, it was just a few days ago, I was watching on uh, the internet, there was a documentary done on the Oklahoma City bombing again, that interviewed a number of the key people involved. And they, I mean, it showed, for example, the news footage describing how the rescue workers found unexploded bombs inside the building. You had a number of experts, I mean, detonation experts, saying there was simply no way a truck filled with fuel oil and fertilizer parked across the street could have inflicted that massive damage on the building. And, you know, when you have, for example, reports on the news media, I mean, basically, I think it was even the governor of the state declared that unexploded bombs were found inside the building. And when experts say the build, the you know truck parked outside could not possibly be involved, when there's very strong evidence that there were additional conspirators involved in the attack, I mean, it seems that there definitely was some sort of cover-up. And, you know, there are lots of different theories as to who was behind it and why. But I, I think it's very unlikely that the story was basically what it was portrayed as being. And, you know, it, it's simply one example of so many other cases where things that I, you know, blindly accepted in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal at the time as being, you know, open and shut cases of, you know, basically a lone nut or a lone assassin being involved in something are entirely different than that. And, you know, the, the list is really very long in that area. The lone gunman, the lone bomber. It's funny how I, <laughs> I always rely on that. Yeah. Um, okay. So now I have a whole list of questions here. I was just kind of uh, feeling it out there on my own. I have some prepared questions too. One of them was, and I mentioned it a moment ago, the JFK assassination. Uh, who do you believe was behind that? Now that's a little bit more high level uh, conspiracy theory. Although Oklahoma City's pretty high level too, I guess. Exactly. Uh, but the biggest terrorist attack in American history. Yeah, that's pretty high level now that I think about it. But uh, you know, they killed the president. I guess it doesn't really. <laughs> get too much higher than that though uh so what do you think was going on there what actually happened or how has it been misreported in the media well i mean there are really two stages i think to the jfk thing the first question is 
was it was the story what the media portrayed it as? In other words, was it a single lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald? And there seems overwhelming evidence that it wasn't. In other words, anybody who looks through the information, I mean, there's so many flaws in the theory. I mean, a huge number of things. I mean, the number of bullets, the number of shots, basically the, the fact, I mean, I, I never paid any attention to the JFK conspiracy theories during my entire life until probably about 10 years ago. In other words, I went through all those years. I certainly was aware of the conspiracy movement, all of these conspiracy books. I'd never read a single one. I'd never looked at any of them because I believed the media. But I mean, when I stumbled across the fact that in the establishment theory, a single bullet allegedly was responsible for seven separate wounds in JFK and Governor Connolly sitting near him. I mean, that really seemed very strange to me. And then, you know, I ended up then watching, for example, the, uh, you know, the famous Oliver Stone movie, JFK, and starting to read a few books. I mean, there was absolutely overwhelming evidence that the official story is false. And not only that, one thing that really persuaded me was the David Talbot book that came out probably by now about uh, 15, 20 years ago. Because one, one reason I'd never believed that there was any sort of conspiracy theory involved was that I said to myself, look, Robert F. Kennedy was the highest law enforcement official in the government, uh, in the United States. He was the attorney general. He was obviously, if there had been any conspiracy, he certainly would have tracked down the people involved in killing his own brother, the president. And, you know, since he clearly believed that there was no conspiracy, there couldn't have been a conspiracy. And that's one reason I discounted it. And when I read the David Talbot book, I discovered that Robert Kennedy had believed that there was a conspiracy from almost the moment the assassination took place. But because his brother was no longer the president and LBJ, his a deep personal enemy of his, had suddenly become president, he lost all of his power. He still was on paper the attorney general, but he had no control over the FBI, he had no control over law enforcement. And so there was nothing really he could do about it, except eventually run for president himself in hopes of tracking down his brother's assassins. Now, the whole thing is, if you start to realize that the official story is false, in other words, that there was a conspiracy, then you have to ask yourself who was involved. And I ended up reading quite a lot of books on it. You know, you have, for example, there's a great deal of evidence that various figures in organized crime were certainly involved in the conspiracy. There's a great deal of evidence that elements of the CIA, not the CIA as an organization, not, for example, the director of the CIA, but some high-ranking CIA officials and certainly some lower ones were probably involved in the assassination conspiracy as well. And those are the sort of likely suspects that are widely talked about in you know, the JFK conspiracy movement. But when you really look at the facts, when you really look at stuff in more detail, I think the overwhelming evidence points towards two sources at the top level of the conspiracy. One of them is really the most obvious suspect you can imagine, Vice President Lyndon Johnson. Obviously, he was the person who benefited most from the death of the president. And what I hadn't realized, what nobody had known at the time, was that JFK was planning to drop him from the ticket and also destroy him politically. In other words, uh, JFK had been bitter enemy of Johnson and put it, he'd been almost forced to put him on the ticket. And once he became vice president, he lost all of his power in the Senate. He'd been the most powerful Democrat in the United States when he controlled the Senate. But what Kennedy decided to do was to drop him from the ticket and destroy him politically because Johnson had been massively involved 
in all sort of corrupt activities when he was governor of Texas. I mean, he'd become one of the wealthiest Americans on a government salary of no money at all because he'd been involved in corruption. And so what JFK had done was to organize a media plan to destroy Johnson and also implicate Johnson in several murders that are taking place in Texas, where Johnson had very likely been involved in basically orchestrating the murder of government officials in support of his corruption schemes and to protect him from protect himself from prosecution. So in other words, all of that had been set in motion by the president so that not only would Johnson have been dropped from the ticket, but he very likely would have gone to prison and been destroyed politically. So Johnson was under tremendous pressure to strike first, and that's probably what is involved in. The other group involved, which virtually nobody is willing to talk about, was the Israeli Mossad and the government of Israel. Because at the time, nobody was aware of it. But one of Kennedy's most important secret foreign policy efforts was to prevent the government from Israel from acquiring nuclear weapons. They, had to, they basically had a secret nuclear development program using uh, materials that they'd stolen from the United States. And they were planning to basically build a nuclear weapons capability. Kennedy basically had threatened to cut off all American aid. And it put tremendous pressure on the government of Israel to prevent them from developing a nuclear capability. And that provides obviously a tremendous motive for David Ben-Gurion, the Israeli prime minister, to set in motion the forces that were involved in Kennedy's assassination. And when you look at, for example, when you look at the groups and individuals who very likely were involved in the assassination, in other words, at that layer of analysis, you find that very many of them had deep, deep ties to Jewish activist groups or the government of Israel or the Israeli Mossad. And those are probably the forces that were involved, a mixture of probably LBJ, President Johnson, Vice President Johnson, and the Israeli government working hand and foot to basically get rid of their nemesis, John F. Kennedy. Now, there are a lot of other groups that obviously wanted, hated Kennedy and wanted to get rid of him. But one point to make, which I've tried to emphasize to people, is Kennedy was going to have a very difficult re-election in a year's time. In other words, he'd supported civil rights legislation. So the South had normally been the linchpin of any Democratic candidate running for the presidency. Kennedy had won overwhelming support in the South to get elected the first time. And he would probably lose much of his Southern support because of his support for black civil rights. He, so, you know, he basically faced an uphill battle for re-election. I mean, he might very well have won, but he might very well have lost. And most of the groups in the United States, the people in the CIA, organized crime, his political enemies who wanted to get rid of him, probably would have focused on defeating him for re-election. Because, I mean, that, that's a much safer thing than trying to assassinate the president of the United States. The two groups, the two forces who couldn't wait a year's time were Lyndon Johnson, who was about to be destroyed politically, dropped from the ticket and probably sent to prison, and the government of Israel, which was under tremendous pressure, immediate pressure, risking a loss of all American support and funds unless they canceled their nuclear weapons program. So in other words, those two groups had the strongest incentive for an immediate action to change the political playing field. And once Johnson became president, once Kennedy was dead and his successor Johnson became president, 
the one area of American policy that immediately changed was our policy towards Israel. In other words, Johnson became the most pro-Israeli president America had ever had. America immediately reversed course on the Israeli nuclear weapons program and on all other issues. And then obviously with the attack on the USS Liberty a few years later, Johnson did everything he could to cover it up. The fact that the Israelis had attacked an American ship and killed or wounded more than 200 American servicemen. So, you know, for those reasons, and when you look at the details of who was likely involved in the assassination, the fingers all point very clearly towards the Israeli Mossad, as well as organized crime, CIA, and Lyndon Johnson, all of those groups working together in the assassination. And, you know, these are the sort of things that, I mean, even, for example, probably 99% of the JFK assassination researchers or assassination books stay very far away from ever touching upon Lyndon Johnson or the Israeli Mossad, because those issues are simply too hot to handle. But I mean, the facts are there. And I, I think the evidence is overwhelming that they point in that direction. That may be the most succinct um, explanation. I've heard people say these things before, but you really laid it out there. Now, okay, so let's go from JFK to 9-11. Uh, now, that's another one that perhaps I've had some people on this show uh, speculate that Mossad maybe had a hand uh, in that as well. Um, I, I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but uh, what about 9-11? Well, I mean, that, that's very similar. In other words, when we're talking about enormous events in American history, I mean, the JFK assassination was one turning point. The 9-11 attacks are another. I mean, we're talking about the largest terrorist attack in, the, in human history. 3,000 Americans killed. Our three skyscrapers in New York destroyed in the Pentagon. Now, you know, the first thing about it, I, to be honest, at the time the 9-11 attacks happened, I really didn't, you know, obviously I followed what was happening in the news, but I didn't really pay much attention to the inner details. In other words, again, I totally believed what the media said. There was 19 Arab hijackers, three jet, two jets hitting the buildings in New York City, a third jet hitting the Pentagon, another jet crashing or being shot down. So in other words, I, I didn't really focus on any of those underlying details. It was probably only about, oh, seven or eight years later. And I started reading some of the things on the internet, pointing to some of the very suspicious aspects of the 9-11 attacks and discovering that there was a whole 9-11 truth movement that had built up over the years. Now, so the first question is, is the official story true? And, you know, the evidence against the official story is so absolutely overwhelming that I think anybody who looks at it will become very quickly convinced. In other words, you know, I mean, just take, for example, the fact that allegedly an intact hijacker passport was found on the street outside the World Trade Center towers. In other words, everything else on the plane had been destroyed, but a hijacker passport was found on the street, which is just ridiculous. Or, for example, one of the hijackers allegedly lost his luggage on the way to the attack, and the luggage was filled with all sorts of incriminating details like his plans for the attack, you know, odes to Islam, that sort of thing, just total nonsense. And the fact that, for example, these Islamic fundamentalist hijacked terrorists, when they were living in Florida, apparently were heavily involved with drugs, alcohol, eating pork, visiting prostitutes. I mean, these are not the sort of things you expect fanatic Islamic fundamentalists to do. So, I mean, there's massive evidence against it. Or, for example, Building 7. We have, uh, which I'd never even heard of at the time. It was only years afterwards I found out that there was a third 
Wall Street, uh, a third World Trade Center skyscraper that had been destroyed. I mean, we're talking about basically a gigantic skyscraper that was not hit by a plane that collapsed in what obviously looked like controlled demolition, where there were more than 100 eyewitnesses, rescue workers and people like that, who heard the explosions taking place. I mean, there's absolutely overwhelming evidence that the buildings were destroyed by some sort of controlled demolition, whether it was thermite, whether microthermite, whether other types of explosive. I mean, those are just the details. The important thing is that the official story is obviously false. So in other words, once you have a situation where you recognize that the official story is false and that the buildings were destroyed in a demolition effort, you then have to ask yourself, well, who could have possibly been involved? And one thing that was a very interesting story at the time that didn't receive the sort of coverage that normally would have been expected is that, you know, we're talking about a massive operation. I mean, to destroy all those skyscrapers, we're talking about something that, you know, couldn't be carried out by a handful of his ragtag band of Islamic fundamentalist terrorists. And it turns out right at that point, the FBI broke the largest foreign spy ring in American history, 200 Mossad agents were arrested and rounded up by the FBI, many of them in the New York City area, some of whom were behaving in very suspicious ways. I mean, you've probably heard the, you know, what's called the dancing Israelis, where basically five Mossad agents were caught red-handed celebrating the destruction of the World Trade Center and taking a video of it, a souvenir video. Now, you know, again, it was the sort of thing they were celebrating the attack. And not only that, but they'd set up the camera before the second plane hit. I mean, they obviously had advanced knowledge. So we're talking about a situation where 200 Mossad agents were arrested by the FBI. And in fact, some of them, for example, were caught in vans, driving around in vans in New York that apparently had traces of explosives. So in other words, there was a very reasonable possibility that there were other terrorist attacks that had been planned that, you know, simply weren't carried out. Not only that, but a few weeks later, two Mossad agents were arrested trying to sneak into the Mexican parliament building with guns and explosives. In other words, it, it seems very possible that they were planning to basically blow up the Mexican parliament building or launch a terrorist attack there to show that Islamic terrorism was just as dangerous in Latin America as it was in the United States. And so, I mean, they were arrested. It was on the headlines of some of the biggest Latin American newspapers, you know, under political pressure. Then they were released and allowed to go back to Israel, but they were caught with weapons and explosives trying to sneak into the Mexican parliament building. So, you know, when all of those things happen, and when you ask yourself, well, who in the world benefited from the results of the 9-11 attacks? In other words, you know, again, with a terrorist operation like this, it's very, very hard to dig through all the details. In other words, we still don't really know how the buildings were destroyed in New York City. There are all sorts of different theories, what types of explosives or weapons were used. But I mean, those are really sort of secondary. The key thing you have to ask yourself is, well, who would have benefited from? It? Now, obviously, the United States did not benefit. I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of thing, most of the people who are involved in the 9-11 truth movement tend to be sort of leftists, leftist activists. And they sort of assume that all Republicans are Dr. Evils or something like that. And that, you know, the reason, for example, they basically, typically what you see most of them argue is that, oh, Cheney and Bush or Cheney and Rumsfeld were the ones behind the 9-11 attacks, which is just insane. Now, you know, we're talking, obviously, America has 
the CIA, we have special forces, we have groups that certainly can be used by the president to launch terrorist attacks or special operations in other countries. But Bush had basically been elected only because of the dangling chads in Florida. In other words, half the country regarded George W. Bush as an un, as an un implausible president. It's not really the true president of the United States. And we're talking about a theory. What all these 9-11 truthers believe is that the first thing Cheney and Rumsfeld did when they came into office was to go to the CIA and special forces on our military and tell them, we've decided to destroy the World Trade Center in New York City, and we've decided to destroy the Pentagon, to launch an attack on the Pentagon. And so I'm ordering you now to set up plans to destroy the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon. They're just insane. In other words, 90% of the media in the United States, 95% of the media, hated the Bush administration. If the CIA or special forces or the military had been given insane orders like that, the first thing that would happen, it was all been leaked to the media. And Rumsfeld and Cheney or whoever were involved would have been sentimental institutions. I mean, you don't do something like that. So, I mean, there's simply no way the Bush administration or anybody in it could have been involved in organizing those attacks using American forces. America, the 9-11 attacks were a disaster for the United States. I mean, basically, we spent $6 trillion over the next few years because of all of our foreign wars. I mean, America basically was in, it was a peace, had peace and prosperity before the attacks. I mean, we certainly didn't benefit from it all. No other country in the world really benefited from the 9-11 attacks. I mean, for example, there's, you know, when you look at the um, Saudi Arabia or, you know, the, uh, the oil countries in the Middle East, I mean, most of them were entirely opposed to our Iraq war. I mean, they committed all of their lobbying power to prevent us from the, going into Iraq. Or when you look at, for example, the oil industry, the oil men in Texas, I mean, they were totally opposed to the Iraq war. Cheney, before he became vice president of the United States, had been lobbying as head of uh, Halliburton to eliminate the sanctions on Saddam Hussein. In other words, to restore normal trade relations with Saddam Hussein. The only country in the world that benefited directly from the 9-11 attacks was the government of Israel. Because for the previous year and a half, Israel had been under the gun under the second intifada. In other words, there were constant suicide bombings going on all throughout Israel. It was a desperate time. And more and more Israelis were leaving the country because it was getting to be so dangerous. The economy was collapsing. I mean, Israel basically had its back to the wall. The Israeli leader at the time, Ariel Sharon, was known to be an extraordinarily bold and reckless leader. In other words, he'd been involved in terrorist attacks for decades. He basically... He organized the uh, invasion of Lebanon under the Begin government, which had been a disaster for Israel. I mean, he basically had been involved in organizing massive, massive terrorist attacks in Lebanon leading up to that invasion. And so we're talking about an extremely, extremely reckless leader with his back to the wall. Once the 9-11 attacks took place, in fact, one of the um, Israeli Mossad agents who was caught you know, celebrating the attacks, basically was interviewed and said, now this, you know, Arab terrorism is not now only our problem, it's your problem as well. And that's exactly what happened. In other words, suddenly America turned all of its force to fighting Arab terrorism, fighting Islamic terrorism, destroying all the countries in the Middle East 
that were Israel's main rivals and opponents, regional rivals. In other words, we ended up destroying Iraq, which was the strongest Arab country. Later on, we destroyed Syria, we destroyed Libya. We basically smashed all of the countries in the Middle East that were most opposed to Israeli policy and basically were supporting the Palestinians in their attacks against Israel. So, I mean, the only country in the world that benefited tremendously from the 9-11 attacks and the massive wave of American military spending and military operations that followed was the Israeli government. The Israeli government was led by an extraordinarily ruthless and reckless leader at the time. And 200 Mossad agents were caught in New York City, in the vicinity of the, um, of the attacks, in other parts of the country, and also living in Florida right next to the hijackers in the six months before the hijacking. So I think there's extremely strong evidence that Israel and the Israeli Mossad was the main force behind the 9-11 attacks. In fact, I think that's the reason that the media has been so unwilling to dig into the true nature of the 9-11 attacks, because probably, I think probably many of them deep down suspect either that Israeli, Israel was involved or might have been involved or could be suspected of having been involved. If it were a question of simply the media implicating Cheney and Rumsfeld and the Republicans, as being the masterminds behind the 9-11 attacks. I think an awful lot of the liberal American media hated the Bush administration so much and hated the Republicans, they gladly would have done it. But if, on the other hand, there was a significant chance that Israel would have been found to be the culprit, I think the media would be very worried about that. And that's exactly what happened in a number of cases. For example, Fox News ran a four-part series on, for example, the Israeli Mossad agents who were caught in the aftermath of 9-11, and under tremendous pressure, it was pulled from the internet almost immediately. Lots of other publications that were very willing to write articles denouncing, for example, the Bush administration, even hinting that Cheney and Rumsfeld might have been involved, never would have gone any deeper than that. Because, I mean, basically, they're also under the gun of the ADL, or you know, very uh, very supportive and friendly towards the government of Israel. So I mean, we're talking about just a massive cover that's gone on now for more than twenty years, and you know anybody can go on the internet and find some of the documentaries. In fact, I was just watching one of them yesterday that was originally released about a decade ago. You know, it just goes through all the details of the collapsing World Trade Center towers and the tremendous evidence that the official story is false. And once you decide the official story is false, you then have to dig a little bit deeper and decide who could have been involved. And I think at that point, the evidence turns very strongly towards Israel and the Israeli Mossad having been involved. And, you know, we're talking about, for example, the liberty, the U.S. liberty having been attacked. I mean, basically 200 American servicemen were killed or wounded in an unprovoked attack by the government of Israel in 1967, and it's been covered up for more than a half century by the American media and the American government. As I said earlier, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that Israel played a major, that the Israeli Mossad played a major role in the JFK cover-up, which in the JFK assassination, which again has been covered up now for going on 60 years. And so with all of that having taken place, you sort of have a situation where a country feels it can get away with more and more things over time. And then we see the result being the what I think probably was the 9-11 attacks. I mean, you know, for 200 Israeli Mossad agents 
to be arrested by the FBI, behaving in extremely suspicious ways in the exact vicinity of where the attacks took place and having been basically trailing and sharing you know, addresses with some of the hijackers in the six months leading up to the attack. I mean, just an extraordinarily suspicious situation. Furthermore, for example, if we're talking about getting access to the buildings, in other words, if the World Trade Center towers were destroyed by controlled demolition, that completely rules out Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda could not possibly have had access to the buildings to smuggle in the necessary explosives to destroy them. Now, it turns out the buildings were under the control of uh, Larry Silverstein, a very pro-Israeli uh, you know, New York real estate developer. And the, 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 he basically could have given full, probably not, not knowingly, but basically people in his orbit or people under his authority could have obviously given access to Israeli Mossad demolition teams to basically wire the buildings for destruction. And, you know, and that's why the story of the destruction of the buildings is such a powerful clue, because if the buildings were destroyed by controlled demolition, suddenly Al-Qaeda cannot possibly have been responsible and somebody else has to be responsible. And when you look at who possibly might have had the motive, means, and opportunity to take that step, I mean, basically, the arrow of guilt points in one very obvious direction. So you mentioned the ADL there uh, as part of that, and that was one of my questions, too. Uh, you know, when you search your name, of course, they delisted your website, Owns Review, from, from Google. Uh, mm -hmm. So one of the things that you see your Wikipedia page, but there's also uh, basically a hit piece from the ADL uh, that pops up, and this guy's hateful, and he hosts all these people, and da-da-da-da. What... Uh, so could you go into your history with the ADL? There's been a ban the ADL movement going around recently, too. You maybe could touch on that. Uh, but go into your experience with them, and do you think they've subverted American society with their role? Well, I mean, to be honest, again, I'm, uh, until probably a few years ago, I'd really only been vaguely familiar with the ADL. In other words, you know, it's seen them, obviously, in the newspaper. I mean, they're always quoted in the newspapers a lot. I mean, a lot of their power comes from their ability to focus media attacks or media coverage on sources of, you know, groups that they oppose. And it turns out, you know, when I started writing some of these articles on my uh, webzine, you know, I mean, I certainly expected that the ADL would get heavily involved and they ended up publishing, to be honest. I mean, I was really wondering whether they sort of would take any action against me at all, because it's the sort of thing where, you know, if you attack somebody, you then bring attention to that person. So it can obviously backfire. And you know, as I started going through the JFK assassination, the 9-11 attacks, World War II, all of the hot button issues that they'd been involved in, I was really wondering whether they would ever actually do anything. And you know, again, our website was getting quite a lot of traffic and these articles were getting quite a lot of readership. And then finally, you know, I ended up putting up a note saying, you know, has the ADL gone into hiding? In other words, why haven't they done anything? I've been writing these articles for many, many months. And then finally, they came out with, to be honest, a very milk toast sort of thing, an anonymous blog post that was like probably a couple of hundred words or something like that. Not at all a dramatic hit piece, but that gave me then the opportunity to describe the true history of the ADL, which is very different than most people imagine. Uh, and it was the sort of thing I'd actually only discovered that a, probably a year or two early, and I'd been sort of wondering whether the ADL would give me an opening to describe its history. The ADL was founded just over 100 years ago, 1913, 
And the shocking story is the ADL was founded to basically prevent the death, the execution of somebody named Leo Frank, who was a very prominent Southern Jewish figure, a sort of wealthy Jewish businessman who had been accused and convicted of raping and murdering one of his 13-year-old employees, a 13-year-old girl. And it was a shocking case. Now, it turns out, at the time, you know, all the history books we have basically say Leo Frank was innocent. Leo Frank was innocent. Leo Frank was convicted simply because of the anti-Semitism of the, of the South of that period. And that's something I'd always imagined myself. But a year or two earlier, I'd end up digging into the story, reading some of the material, reading the books on both sides. And it was very clear that there was overwhelming evidence that Leo Frank was absolutely guilty. Not only that, but he basically, he was convicted and sentenced to death after the longest trial in Southern history. The, the modern day equivalent of $25 million was spent supporting him. In other words, it was the most expensive homicide trial probably in American history. I think, for example, the O.J. Simpson case was something like six or seven million dollars. And here we're talking about the modern day equivalent of 25 million dollars in the impoverished South, deep South of Atlanta over a hundred years ago. A huge amount of that money was spent on bribes, corruption, perjured testimony. There was a massive effort to save Leo Frank's life. And ultimately, I mean, for example, and there was not the slightest evidence of any sort of anti-Semitism involved. In fact, three of the grand jurors who voted for Leo Frank to trial were Jewish themselves. There was not the slightest evidence of any sort of anti-Semitism. The interesting thing is Leo Frank's trial strategy was entirely based on trying to take advantage of what was the notorious racialism, racism of the Old South. In other words, Leo Frank falsely accused one of his own black workers, an illiterate janitor, of being the rapist and murder involved. And basically the sort of effort of Leo Frank and his team ended up trying to orchestrate the lynching of several totally innocent black men using faked evidence so as to basically divert suspicion away from Leo Frank. And the ADL was then heavily involved in all of this. Now, what ended up happening was finally at the end, with the massive amount of money committed, even though he was, uh, even though Leo Frank was convicted by a jury unanimous, basically, and sentenced to death, 13 appeals then were launched to try to save his life, including two of them to the U.S. Supreme Court. All of the appeals were denied. But as the time of his execution grew near, it turns out the governor of the state, just before leaving office, who was the private business partner of one of Leo Frank's lawyers, ended up commuting Leo Frank's sentence and saving his life, which, you know, I mean, given the fact that, for example, the private diaries of many of the people involved on Leo Frank's side, for example, the publisher of the New York Times or one of the wealthy businessmen who committed most of the money, you know, they admit that a lot of the money was being spent on bribery and corruption to try to basically get a favorable verdict. There seems to be very strong evidence that the governor took that extremely unpopular step, you know, for reasons of basically financial benefit. And so then Leo Frank ended up being uh, then a group of, of local, really Southern community figures ended up then lynching Leo Frank. So he was the only Jewish person lynched in all of American history. Uh, 
probably about uh, three or 4,000 people have been lynched in American history, most of them black, but about a third of them being white. Only one of them in all of American history was Jewish, but probably he's the most famous lynching in all of American history, even though he'd been convicted by a jury of his peers and sentenced to death, despite you know his having the best courtroom representation he could possibly have. And so basically what the ADL was found in, you could say to do, was <laughs> its original goal, its original intent, it was founded as sort of a branch, a division of the uh, B'nai B'rith, the sort of Jewish fraternal organization, was basically to save the life of a Jewish rapist and murder. Somebody basically raped and murdered a 13-year-old girl. And that sort of view of the ADL has really continued on to some extent over the years. For example, one thing that is not very well known is that the ADL, back about 20 or 30 years ago, the ADL was raided by the FBI because it was discovered to be keeping secret intelligence files on tens or even hundreds of thousands of Americans. In other words, thousands of organizations around the country, left-wing organizations, right-wing organizations, libertarian organizations, neutral organizations, all organizations that were viewed as insufficiently pro-Jewish or pro-Israel were basically being spied upon by the ADL. It was basically just a private spy organization, much like the Stasi. I mean, they, according to some accounts, had files, secret intelligence files, on a million Americans. Most of those files having been illegally acquired by basically paying bribes to police officers or police organizations. But because the ADL has such a positive image in the American media, in other words, the ADL is always portrayed in very positive terms as an anti-racist organization, an organization fighting extremism. The end result is that Silicon Valley, most of these Silicon Valley or, you know, uh, social media organizations, YouTube, Twitter until recently, and uh, Facebook basically have put their censorship operations under the authority of the ADL. So, I mean, we basically have an organization that was created for the worst sort of reasons you could possibly imagine. To save basically a, a rapist and murder from just punishment, having been convicted of his crime over 100 years ago, that then had a long history of spying and espionage on people. And now basically has become an enforcer of censorship laws in social media and in other parts of you know American society. I mean, it's basically, it's really one of the most disreputable organizations you can possibly imagine. I'm not a bit surprised that ended up then giving in to Elon Musk and basically, you know, agreeing to call off its efforts to hinder his advertising because, I mean, basically he was suing them and the discovery process probably would have ended up destroying their organization. So, I mean, we're talking about, hey, here's another thing that people don't really realize about the ADL. The ADL portrays itself as being an anti-racist organization. And, you know, for example, J. Edgar Hoover is widely vilified in the American media these days. You know, at the time, 40, 50 years ago, he was a great American hero, but now he's almost a universal villain. And one of the main accusations always made against J. Edgar Hoover is that he was involved in spying on Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, horrible thing people accuse him of. Now, it turns out if you really look at the story that came out, the ADL was the organization spying on Martin Luther King. They were the ones taping him. And they simply gave the tapes to J. Edgar Hoover, with whom they worked very closely. It turns out back about 30 years ago, 
a high-ranking official with the ACLU, who'd previously been a high-ranking ADL official, came out and admitted that he'd left the ADL because they had been involved in spying on Martin Luther King and providing the secret tapes to J. Edgar Hoover. Now, nobody in the media was willing to cover the story. So in other words, everybody thinks it was the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover who was spying on Martin Luther King. It was actually the ADL. And that's just a sign of the extent to which the ADL is totally protected and insulated from any criticism in the American media. So getting back to the original point, when the ADL had come out with really a sort of very, um, to be honest, minor and small piece sort of criticizing me for some of the things that I'd written on some of those sensitive subjects, I then came out with a very long piece describing the true history of the ADL. And since that time, they've stayed very, very far away from my website or anything like that. In other words, basically, there are two strategies an organization like the ADL can follow. One strategy is ferocious attacks, concentrating a tremendous amount of attack and media coverage against somebody. The other strategy, if they decide that that would be counterproductive, is the blackout strategy. And I think it's pretty clear what the ADL has done is to ensure that no media organization under their influence is willing to mention our website or anything about us under any circumstances. And there have been some very funny cases like that early on. For example, you know, I've been interviewed over the years many times by the New York Times. And a few months after that ADL controversy, uh, one of the Times reporters called me about something. And, you know, she interviewed me, I think, probably for about an hour and a half. On, uh, it was actually had to do with uh, the uh, Harvard lawsuit and that sort of thing, you know, the uh, discrimination issue over Harvard. And afterwards, she dropped me a friendly note saying, you know, she was sorry. It was such a good conversation. She'd only been able to use a few of my quotes, like two or three of my quotes in the article. When the article came out, there were no quotes in there. And, you know, since that time, I can't think of a single time our website or my name has appeared in any of the American media outlets, even when it's the sort of thing that would be very obvious to cover. In other words, there have been one or two times it's leaked out, but it's been very, very rare. And I think it's simply because the ADL put it out very clearly that any coverage of our publication or the material I've written would be, you know, very counterproductive to their efforts. And so, you know, it's the old blackout strategy. And I think probably, I mean, I'm not saying ours is the only website to suffer from that. I mean, there have been quite a lot of other websites and publications that have been similarly subjected to that sort of silent treatment. But I, I think it's the sort of thing where, you know, if the ADL realizes it's counterproductive to attack you or to get the media to attack you, they decide the best thing is to make sure that as few people become aware of what you're saying is possible. Now, you mentioned your website, Underview. Uh, I got some questions. I'm going to try to roll through some of these. Um, so what is your, I guess, what's the logic, what's the motivation for you uh, to publish uh, people, not that everything that's published there is like, you know, you autographed and signed as your point of view, right? Uh, that's certainly not the case. But uh, what's your, what's the impetus for, for hosting people that may be described as uh, white nationalists or race realists or extremists or whatever? Uh, and what, what sets you on that path? Sure. Well, I mean, that's the sort of thing where over the years I've been browsing the internet 
you know, just different websites and looking at a wide range of different ideological perspectives. And when I ended up deciding to launch the website almost exactly 10 years ago, I really decided that there might be an opening for an alternative media website that provided convenient access to a very wide range of opinions. So, for example, you know, not just left wing, not just right wing, not just libertarian, but people from really all sorts of different points on the political ideological compass, you know, including, for example, extreme points. And I mean, you know, again, I want to make it very clear that I, I certainly don't agree with a lot of the stuff published on our website. In fact, you know, in a few cases, especially during the COVID epidemic, I mean, we, we ended up having a tremendous amount of coverage on COVID issues. And I was a very small minority of the writers on my website and the positions I took on it. But it's the sort of thing where, you know, I, I just think it's it's very useful to have convenient access to all of these different perspectives. You know, again, people who may strongly disagree with each other on many issues, but sometimes strangely agree with each other on other things. So, for example, if you take the current Ukraine war, you have people on the left, people on the right, people on the libertarian side, people who normally don't agree on almost anything, who all basically are following the same viewpoint on, you know, whether America's really right to get involved in a proxy war with nuclear-armed Russia on Russia's own border. And so that sort of issue shows sometimes people that, you know, politics is not a one-dimensional landscape. In other words, it's not a single left-right spectrum. It's multi-multi-dimensional. So, for example, there might be a lot of things you'd agree with one person on, but very strongly disagree with him on other points. I think it just it's important for people to have a wide range access to a wide range of different perspectives so that they can decide for themselves what really, you know, the correct issues on all these things. All right. Now, like I said, I'm going to try to speed run through some of these. Um, some of them are going back in the narrative, but uh, what's your theory behind the Hart Seller Act of 1965 and how anti-immigration advocates have misinterpreted it? Oh, that's actually an interesting point. I mean, the whole thing is, if you look, for example, on the Internet, you know, the Immigration Act of 1965 is often denounced as the thing that dramatically changed the demographics of the United States. But I mean, that's really a mistake. For example, what a lot of people don't realize is that in the 1920s, when we had immigration restriction quotas imposed, the quotas excluded the Western Hemisphere. So in other words, we had no quotas on Latin American immigration or immigration from the Caribbean or anything like that. So in effect, prior to 1965, there was no quota on Mexican immigration. In other words, in effect, America had a quasi-open border with Mexico. And, you know, the whole thing is for decades, any Mexican who wanted to come to the United States, I, I think the cost was something like $15 or $20 you would pay $20 and then you would wait a two, day or two for processing and you could come to the United States. So it's certainly true that the demographics of the United States, America's had an enormous wave of Latin American and Mexican immigration since 1965. And, you know, our country, for example, these days, I think is close to 20% Latino, where it was probably about 1% Latino in 1965. But that's in spite of the 1965 Act. It's not because of the 1965 Act. In other words, if the 1965 Act, if the Hart Seller Act had not been passed and the existing policy had stayed, we probably would have had far more immigration from south of the border than we did. 
And it's an honest mistake. In other words, what happened was a lot of the early anti-immigration activists looked at the 1965 Act, which was widely portrayed as being a pro-immigration act because it reopened the borders to immigration, large-scale immigration from Europe and from Asia. And they saw that we had a massive increase in immigration after 1965. So they logically put those two facts together and said that, well, the 1965 Act must have opened the borders to Latin America. But that, that really isn't the case. In other words, anybody can look at the facts and can see that Prior to 1965, there were no limitations. There were no quotas on Latin American immigration. So we probably would have had far more immigration from Latin America if not. The reason we hadn't had more immigration from Mexico and the rest of Latin America is those countries were heavily underpopulated in the 1920s and 1930s. So in other words, the there was no population pressure. And they, went, they underwent a population boom right around the time that the 1965 Act passed. So uh, the, the basic thing, it, it's a perfectly honest mistake that people made probably about 30, 40 years ago in misinterpreting the 1965 Act. And in fact, a number of times, some of these anti-immigration websites have published articles denouncing the 65 Act for that reason. I've pointed out the mistake. They've checked the facts and you know they've admitted that I was right. And so you know they've obviously been careful generally not to denounce the act in the future, but I mean, they have they've already published hundreds or thousands of articles on the internet saying that before, and they can't take down the articles. So, I mean, it's sort of an urban legend that's out there and probably will be out there forever, but I mean, it really is a mistake. I mean, anybody can go and check the facts and see that, you know, even though the 1965 Act was intended to be very pro immigration, the fact that it imposed for the first time quotas on Latin America meant that we had far fewer Latin American immigrants than if it had never been passed. All right. Now, a couple of these are controversial. Uh, no stranger to that, though. Uh, <laughs> and Chief of Staff really wanted me to ask the America First one. I'll ask that towards the end. But um, as a as a Jewish man, you're Jewish. Uh, I don't know sure. if the chat knows that. Uh, I think some of them do. Um, but in Yiddish-speaking household, uh, what's your opinion on the Holocaust and have your views evolved through the years? And if they have, what prompted the change? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, again, to be honest, uh, first of all, uh, there, there's a bit of a mistake. I, I wasn't raised in a Yiddish. Well, that's what household. I said. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. I, I know you can't believe <laughs> yeah, everything. You that's find right. That's media. true. <laughs> but, but, but sort of like, uh, no, actually, my mother was. My mother grew up speaking in okay. a uh, okay. Yiddish-speaking household, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the sort of thing. I mean, I, you know, my view of the Holocaust really had always been very conventional. In other words, I, you know, read about it in the newspapers. I read about it in the history books. And I sort of, you know, vaguely assumed, well, if everybody says these are the facts about what happened, that's probably what happened. I never really paid a great deal of attention to it. It was probably only about, oh, in the last 10 or 12 years. In other words, you know, as I started discovering all these other shocking things, you know, the Vietnam POWs, the JFK assassination, the 9-11 attacks, so many other things. The Oklahoma City bombings were so different than I'd ever believed. That certainly left me much more open to seeing that, for example, the Second World War and the history of the Second World War is probably very different than I'd, what I'd ever imagined. And as I started then, you know, reading and going through, it was probably about eight or nine years ago, that I finally ended up spending some time digging into the story of the Holocaust, reading the books on both sides, reading the articles, going through it. As far as I can tell, you know, basically, 
there's very little evidence that happened the way it did. In other words, there's really overwhelming evidence that the Holocaust, what we call the Holocaust, was a case of wartime propaganda, anti-German wartime propaganda, very similar to the sort of anti-German wartime propaganda that had been created at the time of the First World War. For example, during the First World War, the Germans were accused of bayoneting Belgian nuns, of eating Belgian children, all sorts of ridiculous things. And then a few years after the war, it all came out that it was all basically wartime propaganda and, you know, everybody ridiculed and, you know, had no people admitted it was all false. But in the case of the Holocaust, I, I think something somewhat similar to that happened, except that the government never officially admitted that the Holocaust had been wartime propaganda. In other words, it simply stopped talking about it. As far as I can tell, for a period of about 15 years, from the mid-1940s until the early 1960s, there was virtually no coverage of the Holocaust in the American mainstream media. In other words, anybody who read the mainstream media at that point would never even be in a word that there'd been a Second World War Holocaust. And in fact, a number of books and articles were written ridiculing the Holocaust as being wartime propaganda. And those books and articles were never attacked or criticized for taking that position. One book in particular was published in 1952 by a former American military intelligence officer who'd been responsible for producing the daily briefs on all of our wartime intelligence that went to the White House and all of our government leaders. So I'm in a very responsible position. He ended up writing a book really arguing very much that we'd been for that we'd been misled into fighting the Second World War. There was basically we'd been driven into the war by Jewish activists and by communists. And you know, he was very strongly anti-communist. So he was very concerned about the, you know, increasing influence of communism in the United States. And just in one page of his book, just almost as an offhand comment, he ridiculed the Holocaust as being wartime propaganda that almost nobody believed to be true. And you know, it was basically just debunked wartime propaganda. Now his book, because it was very critical of Jewish activist groups, was ferociously attacked and denounced by those Jewish activist groups, including the ADL. They attacked him on every conceivable ground you can imagine, but they never mentioned a word about the fact that he ridiculed the Holocaust as being wartime propaganda. Not only that, but his book ended up being praised and endorsed by many of America's top military commanders from the Second World War, our top generals, our top admirals. They all said this is a great book. Every patriotic American should read it. And we're talking about a book that explicitly engaged in what people would nowadays call Holocaust denial that was never attacked on those grounds. There's a lot of other evidence in that regard. As far as I can tell, basically the Holocaust story then was revived in the early 1960s, right around the time that the wartime generation of people, in other words, the people actually knew what had happened during the Second World War, were leaving the scene. It then basically was became a major issue in Hollywood. Hollywood ended up doing tremendous numbers of movies. I think there are hundreds of Holocaust movies that have been produced. You know, huge numbers of television shows. It's become an enormously popular theme. But it basically was created from about the early to mid-1960s onward with virtually no sign of any coverage in the American media before that. So, you know, it's very strange when a historical event of that allegedly gigantic magnitude 
is totally ignored for the first 15 years after the war ended. In other words, the Holocaust was raised during the Nuremberg Tribunal in, uh, I guess it was 1946 or something like that. But I mean, the, the details raised were just totally ridiculous. In other words, for example, the Germans were accused of having produced Jewish lampshades of Jewish skin, shrunken Jewish heads, which, you know, Orthodox Holocaust believers nowadays admit were just wartime propaganda. So in other words, those were some of the accusations made. While much of what we now call the Holocaust was totally ignored during the Nuremberg tribunals. And so it largely was a creation of Hollywood if in the 1960s and then especially in the 1970s. And, you know, again, it's a complex issue. You have to go through all the details. But I mean, the thing that really most convinced me that the Holocaust probably was wartime propaganda was reading the books by people like Deborah Lipstedt, who are the main advocates of the Holocaust being real and a real historical work. Because, I mean, basically they and their allies produce all of these books denouncing the American media for having totally ignored the Holocaust during the time it was taking place, for having not believed that the Holocaust was true. In other words, the New York Times and most of our top journalists relegated these Holocaust stories to like small little items buried on page 23 that would say 100,000 Jews had been killed by electric floors or something like something ridiculous like that. It was basically just wartime propaganda. And they treat it as wartime propaganda. So when you see, for example, that our media and our political leaders didn't believe in the Holocaust when it was allegedly taking place, and then there's considerable evidence that nobody seemed to believe in the Holocaust for the 15 years after the war, and it only started to become a major topic of discussion when Hollywood grabbed hold of it and elevated it into this colossal event, you know, you really have to become very skeptical. But so, you know, again, it's the sort of thing, it's a complex subject. And I think somebody really has to go through and read quite a lot of books and articles, weigh them against each other. But I think the evidence is very strong that on the Holocaust is on so many other things. The American media is basically just, you know, not reliable. And, you know, the more times you find that's unreliable on major issues, the more you become willing to accept that's unreliable on other issues as well, as we're seeing now with, you know, the uh, January 6th uh, coup attempt in the United States and things like that. All right. Now let me go to China now. How do you see China and Taiwan relations uh, developing with the decline of American hegemony? And in what ways did the 1999 bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade set the tone there? Well, that's another example. Obviously, it it certainly doesn't rank with most of these other you know huge events. But during the war, when we were bombing Serbia in 1999, one of our bombs hit the Chinese embassy and killed four Chinese diplomats. And at the time, you know, the media reported as just an accidental bombing. We made a mistake. We apologized for it. And the Chinese accused the attack of being deliberate. Now, you know, at the time, that was considered widely a sign of Chinese paranoia. In other words, I remember when I was watching the uh, PBS NewsHour or other things, they interviewed a Chinese diplomat. They interviewed American figures. And I mean, the notion of, for example, America having deliberately attacked the Chinese embassy was just utterly ridiculous. But then it was really just a few years ago. I ended up digging into it more deeply. And it's very clear that the attack was entirely deliberate on the Chinese embassy. In fact, it was widely reported in the major European newspapers. An American colonel 
was actually reported bragging that the missile hit the exact room we were aiming at. And the main reason, for example, we attacked the Chinese embassy is the Chinese were allowing the Serbs to have a uh, radio relay point. Uh, basically, we're allowing their embassy to be used as for Serbian communications when we destroyed most of the other Serbian uh, you know, radio stations and that sort of thing. And also, for example, the Serbs had shot down one of our, uh, one of our uh, stealth bombers. And some of the material, the stealth material, had apparently been given to the Chinese in, uh, you know, in benefit of what they were doing to support Serbia, and it was being stored at the embassy. So in other words, you know, there are a couple of different motives for attack, but it's very clear that the attack was entirely deliberate. And obviously that made the Chinese very angry at us. You know, we attacked their embassy, we bombed their embassy, an act of war. Now, again, that's simply one incident that happened over 20 years ago. But it's very clear in the last few years We've really concentrated, it's probably since 2014 especially, we've really been turning more and more of our military focus to the pivot to Asia. In other words, blocking China's rise. And we've done it in a very irrational sort of way. In other words, China obviously has you know, a huge economy. Their economy is probably larger than the United States. They probably surpassed American size about six or seven years ago partly because their population is so much larger, they're growing more rapidly. They have a very strong technology industry. So, you know, it's a natural thing for America to view China as being a rival. Now, personally, I think we would be much better off having friendly relations with China, just because another country's an economic rival doesn't mean you have to focus on it and start a cold war against it that could turn hot. But what's really shocking about what America has done in the last few years is America has basically alienated Russia and driven Russia into China's arms. So in other words, under normal circumstances, if America viewed China as its great geopolitical rival, the natural thing for America to do would be to obviously form a coalition of every possible country we could get, every large country, to balance out China, Russia, India, Japan, South Korea, the EU, but instead, what we've done by basically focusing on Russia, focusing such intense hostility towards Russia and starting a proxy war in Ukraine is, in effect, driving Russia into China's arms. And Russia and China combined, Russia has enormous natural resources. It's the world's greatest storehouse of natural resources. China has enormous industry. Russia has enormous energy that can power that industry. Russia and China together. I think probably outweigh America and its own allies. And that's clearly part of what's been going on with the BRICS movement. In other words, basically, more and more countries around the world are getting more and more unwilling to basically be bullied by the United States. And so we have India shifting in that direction, Brazil shifting that direction. And most shockingly, Saudi Arabia, our most important Arab ally, are the largest oil exporter in the world, along with Russia, has now been driven into BRICS. And Russia and Saudi Arabia together control the world's oil supply, especially if you put in Iran and a few other countries. So what we have done is because of our irrational aggressiveness, we have basically organized a global coalition against us that's far stronger than what we or our vassal countries in Europe can do. And that's obviously, you know, the fact that we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, as Seymour Hersh revealed, I mean, it's just an act of war against Europe. I mean, what we have done is destroy 
Europe's access to cheap Russian energy, which will have tremendously negative impact on the European economy. And so in the long run, I think we've destroyed our global position because of our irrational aggressiveness towards not just one country, but against all countries that don't knuckle under and basically obey our dictates on all issues, which is just a very you know irrational way to behave. All right, let's shift into some current political topics. If you have any questions on Super Chat Cinema, we got one already about book recommendations. I'll ask that at the end, any more that come in. Um, okay, so uh, who do you think is going to win the 2024 election, and is there <laughs> any good reason to back Trump uh, in 2024? Well, you know, I have very mixed feelings about Trump. But, I mean, the truth is what we are doing right now in Ukraine with Russia is so incredibly dangerous. I mean, Russia is the world's largest nuclear power. Russia has a suite of hypersonic nuclear weapons that gives Russia a considerable degree of strategic superiority. These are unstoppable missiles. But, but Russia could announce tomorrow that they're destroying the NATO headquarters in Brussels. They could give the exact hour and minute that they'll destroy the headquarters, and there's nothing our defenses could do to stop that. So, I mean, we're talking about basically fighting an irrational proxy war in Ukraine on Russia's own border, driving Russia into China's arms and risking a nuclear confrontation. I mean, basically risking World War III. So, you know, I mean, one thing I'll say that Trump was probably correct about is that if Trump had been, if Trump had been president, we probably wouldn't have the Ukraine war. And so, you know, again, I have mixed feelings about all the candidates running. I don't know who's going to run. I mean, I, I don't know who's going to win. I mean, what's incredible right now is that Donald Trump right now is basically being prosecuted. He, he's, I think, at risk of he's under 80, 91 or 95 91. indictments. Yeah. It's the thing. He's facing 700 years in prison. There's a very reasonable chance that Donald Trump will be convicted because when you look at the nature of the juries in the in the areas that he's under trial, I mean, there's a very chance, good chance he'll be convicted under these utterly ridiculous grounds and sent to prison. Just because he's in prison doesn't mean he won't be on the ballot. And I mean, when you look, for example, I, I wrote an article back uh, a few months ago about Eugene Debs, the socialist yes. candidate who ran for president from within a prison cell in 1920 and got over a million votes. Donald Trump could very well run for prison, uh, run for president from within a prison cell and win the presidency from within a prison cell. I mean, it, it's well, what's going on in the United States is just so incredibly bizarre. I mean, and the fact that Donald Trump has gotten more and more popular within his Republican base as all of these ridiculous charges by Democratic prosecutors have been leveled against him. I mean, basically, he, he's, I think, 45 points ahead of all, any other candidate in the Republican primary. I mean, he's going to be the nominee. And if he's the nominee, given the disasters America is now facing and possible looming economic disasters, I think there's a perfectly reasonable chance Donald Trump will be reelected president in 2024, whether or not he's on trial, whether or not he's in a prison cell at the time. I mean, can you imagine America basically, I mean, America will be the laughing stock of the world under those circumstances. I've never heard of such a thing. And, you know, that's that's the situation we're facing. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, Eugene Debs because I mentioned him on the show fairly often. And a lot of people don't even know that, right? Like he ran for president and got a lot of support <laughs> from prison. Uh, and Trump's in, in an even stronger position. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I mentioned him quite often. So I was glad to hear that. Uh, what do you think of Vivek uh, Ramaswamy? 
I, to be honest, I haven't really followed the other candidates that okay. much. I mean, he certainly says a lot of reasonable things. I mean, you know, the problem is most candidates running for the presidency in the United States often say things that will be very popular in their base. And whether they ever would actually carry them out is, you know, entirely another story. So, I mean, you know, again, with most of the candidates, I probably would agree with them on some things, disagree with them on other things. And I don't have any particular favorite, though, you know, I, I do think candidates who are opposed to our insane Ukraine war policy are certainly the candidates I would ultimately end up voting for. And so, you know, whoever's on the ballot that takes that position will probably get my vote, whether or not he's inside a jail cell at the time. All right, now I'll ask the America First question. So if you don't know, I used to be on Cozy.TV. I used to be uh, affiliated with a lot of those guys. I see the question here. Uh, you know, Michelle Malkin's on your site. She's actually been on the show. I was at AFPAC. Andrew Anglin's been on the show many times, although not recently, because uh, I had a falling out with those guys. Uh, but, um, you know, you, you host those people on your site. Uh, Fuentes mentioned you quite often uh, reading your site. Uh, do you have any opinion on America First, good or bad? Like, you could be good things or bad things, uh, given that, that your name dropped there pretty often. I'm not really that familiar with them. In other words, I, I know that, you know, there have been a lot of internal sort of sometimes – you know, problems or disagreements between people. I mean, you know, it happens on the left wing, it happens on the right wing. And I, I think I, I've, I've only, uh, Nick Fuentes, I know, is one of the key figures with the American First Movement, I guess the leader of the American First. I've seen a show, bits of a show a couple of times. I, I don't really, I, I know there are a lot of people who are very active on Twitter, and I don't really use Twitter much or social media. So I'm not so much in that orbit. I, I, probably would agree with I, I probably would agree with the mostly on foreign policy things I think but I, I'm not sure if I would agree with you know a lot of their domestic policy issues but um, you know I, so I, I really don't have sort of a strong opinion on that I mean it's the sort of thing the websites uh, I, I do you know read a lot of for example the web zines like for example even though I disagree with them on a lot of issues I you know regularly read the articles that we republish from American Renaissance or from VDare or from, uh, for example, sometimes the Lou Rockwell website or that sort of thing. And so, you know, I, I probably wouldn't agree with, you know, some of the more extreme racialist views. I mean, I, I really tend to be much more of an assimilationist in my view on these things. And you know, I, I think different groups can sort of get along pretty well in American society. I mean, I, I do think American immigration levels, I mean, the current immigration system is just crazy right now. But I do think in general, immigrants have been a positive force in you know most of american history and you know if we had reasonable immigration levels, i don't know maybe like half of what they are right now legal immigration you know stopped all this crazy stuff going on at the border i i think you know that would be a pretty reasonable policy to take and i i generally do support more free trade and i i don't really support you know a lot of these sort of restrictions or sanctions or tariffs that much though it's not something that i really focus on all that much either yeah, well, and the problem with sanctions is a lot of times that leads to military conflict, right? Because uh, we overuse uh, sanctions. You talk about Russia, you talk about Iran, and all this stuff. Sanctioning uh, everybody in the world. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and then they end up not working either because other countries do business anyway. But um, that's a separate topic. Uh, okay, so uh, I do have a question. I don't know if you followed the Yay24 thing at all either. Uh, somewhat related, but any thoughts on uh, Kanye West? And, that, and now he's been quiet now. I don't think he's going to yeah. run or anything like that. But did, you, did you have any thoughts on it? 
to be fair, I, I don't think I'd even known who he was until the, that controversy <laughs> came up. I, mean, I, I know I, I vaguely knew he was a rap star, and I remember right. was the guy who sort of got involved in some public thing with, with um, uh, with Taylor Swift, like about ten years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. He he's rushed and, the stage and said she didn't deserve. Her right. I, I'd seen that there'd been a story about that in the newspaper on the news, and so I'd seen his name there. And, Probably I'd forgotten about him afterwards. And then I knew he was some sort of rap star or something like that. And then I saw those articles about the fact that he sort of broke, he became very hostile towards Jewish groups. Yeah. And he was talking about running for president or people were talking about running for president. And then he sort of, then that faded out. So I, I don't really, I don't really almost know anything about him. I, I, I did see one show he did where he was wearing some sort of hood or something like that. Yeah. And I, I couldn't figure out why he was wearing a mask. So, <laughs> well, he has a whole theory about owning his uh, likeness or whatever, and that's supposed, which he does, I guess. But I guess his theory is, as a celebrity, it's misused, and that's like a, um, I don't know, some type of meta commentary covering his face up. I don't know. He's a little out there sometimes, but, <laughs> but it definitely was striking, though, from a uh, visual standpoint, because you don't see that too often. Um, okay, so this wasn't a planned question. Question, and then I'll ask you the book question after this and let you go. Um, but you mentioned reading um, people that you don't agree with and even publishing sometimes people you don't agree with. In your case, uh, that's always been a big part of my philosophy, just uh, learning philosophy and also just uh, understanding the landscape uh, is reading a bunch of people you don't agree with. And sometimes I'm, I'm reading more of the people I don't agree with, actually, <laughs> than the people I, I do agree with. What's the benefit of that? Uh, and how did you get in that habit? And just your thoughts on that, that uh, angle. Well, I've always been, you know, somebody who tries to read very widely. I mean, you know, in the old days, for example, I was always reading all of these newspapers and magazines. And, you know, obviously the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times took very different positions on a lot of things. These different magazines are subscribed to different positions. And I assumed that that was the entire ideological landscape. And then when I discovered that all of these publications had been saying the same false things about so many important issues in American history, I realized that I had to sort of extend the boundaries a lot farther. And especially, really, a lot of it was with the Iraq War and the weapons of mass destruction. In other words, when I, during the lead up to the Iraq War, which I was very much opposed to, all of these mainstream publications, whether they were left-wing or right-wing, were saying the same thing. And it was only publications on the internet, sort of fringe publications, whether extremely left-wing or extremely right-wing, that were opposing it. And that really was probably where I really started, you know, looking much more at a broader ideological intake. And then, you know, since then, I pretty much just widened my sort of perspective. I mean, the whole thing about it is when you read articles by people you disagree with, they sometimes then help you strengthen your own arguments, if your arguments are right or persuade you to abandon your arguments or rethink your arguments if your arguments are wrong. And I mean, just discovering so many of these elements of American history were so different than I'd always imagined them to be. I mean, that really showed me why, you know, there are benefits to reading things from fringe people that, you know, might be wrong on 70% or 80% of what they say, but might be very right on the 10% or 20% that are very important. So, I mean, that's basically what I've done. And uh, again, the whole philosophy of the website we have 
is an alternative media website that provides access to those important, interesting, and controversial ideas that are excluded from the mainstream media. And those ideas can be right-wing, they can be left-wing, they can be, you know, ideologically so mixed that you can't really put them on the left-right spectrum. But I think it's useful to just put them out there so that people can sort of read them and decide for themselves. And, um, you know, I mean, the fact that, for example, so many of these columnists so strongly disagree with each other and disagree with me, you know, is proof of the fact that we certainly don't endorse everything that we publish. I, I think it's just useful to have it all gathered together in one place. I mean, it's a lot like, for example, what the Internet was originally intended to be or for Twitter or Facebook or YouTube before the censorship regime really came in. Now, I see this on Odyssey, a critical thing. He said he didn't know you, but he loves you. And says, great to see people can still think for themselves. That is great to see. He said some other stuff about me that I'll read later. Good things. Yeah. Um, oh, and before I give you the book question, because uh, I was going to finish with that, uh, Las Vegas was mentioned earlier in the uh, chat, and not just going to Las Vegas. I have some experience there, too, that I won't go into. But the shooting in Las Vegas, um, and it really fit in more when we were talking earlier, but um, – that thing's almost just been completely uh, forgotten, and you never hear anything about it anymore. Uh, wh what are your thoughts on what actually happened there, and is, is the official telling accurate or not? It's a very strange story. And, you know, again, the official story is a very strange one. Now, I haven't seen any hard evidence that the official story is false. You know, I haven't seen it disproven. But it's such a strange story. I think, what was it, 100 people shot or some huge number of people yeah. machine gunned basically by one guy in a hotel room for no apparent reason. I mean, it's the strangest story you can possibly imagine. I mean, there's no indication that the guy had any motive for doing it. There's some very suspicious aspects of the case that seem very doubtful. In fact, uh, somebody I know, a very mainstream person I know, had come across a long documentary coming up with a sort of conspiratorial view of the case that he sent me a few months ago. I ended up watching it. And, you know, again, it raised all sorts of doubts. I didn't see any solid proof evidence that it was false. But, I mean, there were an awful lot of doubts raised about it. So, I mean, my, my guess right now is I, I'm, I think there's a very good chance that the official story is false and something else happened. But I really don't have a clue what that something else was. And there are all sorts of different theories floating around on the Internet conflicting theories. And maybe one of them is true, or maybe none of them are true. But I mean, right now, it's basically just a question mark, I have to say. Yeah, that's fair to say. That's pretty much my, I don't know exactly what happened. It's just strange <laughs> that nobody talks about the biggest shooting in American history. I mean, it was a big exactly. deal for, for like a week. Uh, and then you almost never hear about it now. And he was in Mandalay Bay, which I've been to since. Mm. You know, like you said, gunned, gunned 100 people. I think they killed like 55 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he, he was an excellent shot. Let's put it that way. Uh, now, um, give us some books that you would recommend uh, to the audience here on the Killstream. They said three books, but, you know, you can recommend as many as you want. Oh, oh, it really, there's so many different books and there's so many different areas of subject. I mean, I, I think, for example, say on the JFK issue, the single best book I think I probably read, and you know, I've read probably about 15 or 20 books. I mean, there are a lot of very good books. Probably the single best one would be David Talbot's book, Brothers, on the assassination of JFK and his younger brother, RFK. In fact, I should say something about the RFK assassination, sure. which took place in 1968. 
you know, the JFK assassination, obviously, you know, it's this huge issue that's been going on for 60 years. I mean, only a tiny fraction of that controversy has been attached to the Robert F. Kennedy assassination. But that case is so obviously a conspiracy. In other words, the official autopsy by the L.A. coroner showed that Robert Kennedy had been killed by a shot behind his head at point-blank range, a contact shot. In other words, he'd been killed by a shot fired within an inch of his head. Sirhan Sirhan was standing seven or eight feet in front of him at the time. Their audio recording showing, showing that at least a dozen shots were fired, and there's a lot of other evidence, bullet wound, a bullet testimony showing a dozen shots were fired. Sirhan's gun only held eight rounds. There's absolutely no way the official story could be true. And in fact, RFK Jr., uh, back a couple of years ago, published a long op-ed explaining why Sirhan Sirhan should be released from prison, since he obviously was not the person who shot Robert F. Kennedy's father. So the whole thing about it is, you know, we're talking about a case that's been ignored by the media, even though all the official evidence is that it obviously was a conspiracy. And in fact, Robert Kennedy was probably killed because if he hadn't been killed, he would have become president and tracked down the people or the groups that had killed his own brother. So in other words, I think the two Kennedy assassinations are very closely linked. And the David Talbot book that came out, I think, probably about 20 years ago, uh, is probably the most important book I read in that regard. That was the book with 200, with 200 interviews, all of which, many of which proved that Robert F. Kennedy was sure that his brother had been killed in a conspiracy. His brother, the president, had been assassinated in a conspiracy almost from the moment it happened. And it explains why the cover-up took place. So I'd very strongly recommend that. Otherwise, with regard to the 9-11 attacks, um, oh, I mean, there's so many 9-11 books. For example, uh, David Ray Griffin has written a number of them on that subject. I mean, uh, basically, I've published a series of articles on these issues. And in my articles, I go through and link and provide the cover links to the books that I use to form my opinion. So in other words, somebody can go through and read my articles, which almost amount to book reviews that provide links and descriptions of these different books to decide really which ones they might want to focus on. Very cool. And uh, I think that's it on the questions. I know they want me to, I'm not going to ask that question. That's a joke question that we ask. Uh, I won't ask that one. Nobody super chatted it in. You know what? If you'd have forced my hand, I would have asked it. But um, that's just a joke question that we ask the guests sometimes. Uh, but I, I really appreciate you taking time here tonight uh, and fielding all questions. Uh, very learned individual. Uh, one of my favorite interviews. And I like to just sit back and let the guests talk. And you're great in that regard uh, and very knowledgeable on all the things we asked you uh so i appreciate your time here tonight tell people where they can find you tell them what you're working on uh and you know give a give a pitch for uns review there as well sure. well i mean you can just find our webzine on the internet it's uns.com now we don't have much of a social media presence and in fact we were unfortunately kicked off facebook back about three years ago along with probably a few other people and then also we were deranked by google so in other words finding our articles on google is difficult but if you just go to our webzine, uns.com, you can get a wide range of different articles. My own articles are grouped into a number of topic areas off to the side in the sidebar. And all the other columnists and people we run, we generally run two main features a day. 
plus a collection of different columnist articles and things like that. So you can get a very wide range of different perspectives if you go there, including my own. And, uh, you know, in terms of the things I'm working on, uh, you know, I'm basically continuing on my American Pravda series. It's now probably, it's gotten very long, especially the last five years. It's up to many, many dozens of articles, 500,000 words. And I have a series of about 12 different print collections that I've published on Amazon that basically gather together most of these different American Pravda articles. You know, convenient print form. You can also get them in freely downloadable ebook form. So in other words, you can just go to the website, click on the ebooks, and download the links there. But I mean, they're all basically freely available to read on the internet. And uh, there's a lot of material there. You can really start almost anywhere you want. Uh, the Second World War, conspiracy theories, racial ethnic issues, um, the COVID the COVID outbreak. And by the one, I should, probably should briefly say one thing that I have spent a lot of time working on the last few years is a very controversial issue, which is probably what got us kicked off Facebook and, uh, and uh, deranked from Google. And that's basically the very strong evidence that the COVID outbreak, the global COVID outbreak that killed over a million Americans and probably 20 million people worldwide was very likely the result of an American bio-warfare attack against both China and Iran. In other words, there's a lot of evidence of American foreknowledge of the outbreak in China, basically evidence that elements of the American government knew about it before it happened. Now, I want to make it very clear. It's almost certain that Donald Trump himself was not aware of what had happened, was not involved in it, but it was probably lower-ranking members of his administration who were running circles around him on other issues. And sometimes, for example, hiding his executive orders, basically doing whatever they wanted, who decided to launch a very reckless bio-warfare attack against China and against Iran to try to devastate their economies because they were viewed as our great you know, global enemies and rivals and end up rebounding and causing disastrous impact on the United States and the rest of the world. So, I mean, you know, that probably has been the biggest topic I've been working on the last three or four years, probably more than half of what I've written, at least before the outbreak of the Ukraine war. That had been the main thing I'd really been focusing on. So, you know, that's certainly, there's a whole section dealing with that with, you know, coverage and some of the interviews I'd given on that topic. But I mean, there are all these different areas. So, you know, if you go to the website, you can just sort of read the material and decide for yourself. And I tried to sort of put all of these different things out there. So people can read them inside for themselves. So anyway, it's uns.com. You can read any of the articles. You can download the eBooks. You can buy the print copies on Amazon if you want. And you can basically see any of the podcast interviews I've done on some of these subjects and just decide for yourself. And I see a question. We're wrapping up now. We should have sent that in earlier, but he's talking about the death of Martin Luther King. We'll have to have you back maybe to talk about uh, the Martin Luther King assassination. You got, you got me right at the end. Oh, I did see this one too. Uh, there's a conspiracy that the books in your background are a green screen. Those are not a green screen. Just to No, be clear. those are real books. <laughs> yeah, the, the chat was having their own fun with that. I was like, no, those are just books. He's been reading his whole life. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Ron Unz. I really had a good time tonight, and I really enjoyed this interview is one of my favorites uh so thank you so much for taking the time out tonight hey thanks for having me very good ron uns uns.com it's been linked uh in the chat there yeah there it is uns.com thank you sir hope to talk to you soon oh 
There we go. Oh, there's Franson on our screen. Get him out of here. Why did you send that in right at the end? That would have been a great question when I was talking about JFK. And then even RFK, even five minutes earlier. I like that interview a lot. Okay. I'm sorry. Fast Gordon says, sorry, Ralph. I tried to send from cell phone and it wouldn't let me. Had to go to desktop. Was watching the Bears game and listening on headset via cell phone. Well, I'm sorry. I really enjoyed the interview. But when I get into the closing mode, it's like, okay, I'm about to let this guy go. He's been here almost two hours. Actually, two hours. And it took like, five, I don't know, three to five minutes to get him on air. Um, but my apologies. I'll turn the TTS back on. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I, I was, uh, you know, he might have stayed longer. Um, but I start getting a little conscious because I didn't have a time set. And it's like, oh, Smug, thank you. Let me go ahead and play that. I'll turn the TTS back on. If you enjoyed, you can still support now. Um, but he may have very well stayed longer. But I start getting conscious as an interviewer where it's like, well, I didn't really tell him how long it would be. He's been so gracious with his time. I don't want to outstay my welcome there. I didn't want to. If one of you guys would have super chatted in the Hitler versus Prince thing, I would have probably asked it, but it didn't really fit. But if you'd have forced my hand, I would have. Fash Golden sent $3. Sorry, Ralph, I tried to send from cell phone and it wouldn't oh, let okay. me had to go to desktop was watching the Bears oh, game and listening on the headset via cell phone. I'm sorry. I'll play your other one now, and then I'll play Smugs. Fash Gordon sent $3. Did we get the full story on the murder of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King? We did, and that would have been I great. know his family wanted Bobby Hillett out of jail and met with him in prison because they thought he was innocent. Well, you know what? That's just more reason to try to get him back. I'll give him a little time. Maybe a few months down the line, we can maybe get him back in here. I really had a lot of fun. Those are my favorite kind of interviews, too. Where it's just a guy who, and all he's way smarter than me. He's way smarter than probably anybody listening to. That's what that's who I like to talk to, people smarter than myself. Uh, and that's how you get smarter. <laughs> Spoiler alert, that's how you get smarter. Uh, Brown box. All right, I'll play that in just a second, and I'll play Smugs here. Smug sent $20. That was awesome, Ralph. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, I was looking forward to it. Um, people who helped me with the show was looking forward to it. And, um, you know, I just emailed him. And, uh, you know, I thought, thought we gave a pretty good pitch. But um, I didn't know that he would come on. And he's like, sure, Ralph. He called me Ralph, too. He's like, yeah, Ralph, I'd love to come on. I was like, okay. All right, then. Great. And that's how that materialized last week. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really free until, until sometime this week, so I picked Thursday night, and uh, that's how that went down. So very cool of him to do it. I never talked to him before. And he's very well known in these circles and uh, hosts a very good website. Uh, yeah, I'll have to – I definitely will ask him that next time. Literally, if, if – I know you didn't have an opportunity. I'll pray that too, Brown Box, and I got your question in. Um, 
if you'd have got it in even five or ten minutes earlier, I know I could have, and he may have even done it then. But it's like, well, you you kind of get out of the mode, and and the guest is getting ready to get let go, and it's like I don't know. There's kind of like a ebb and flow to these things. So it's like oh, I'm about to let him go. He's already you know getting in disengage mode, and so you know brown box. Thank you. What is this? Is this a JF song. Remember when you ran away and I got on my knees and begged you not to leave because I go berserk? What? Well, you left me anyhow and then the days got worse and worse and now you see I've gone completely out of my mind. Yeah, he knows about everything. We didn't even get to talk about physics. What is it? He's like coming to take me away. He went to Stanford for physics. Where life is beautiful all the time. We didn't even get to talk about science and shit. Happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats and they're coming to take me away. You thought it was a joke, and so you laughed. You laughed when I had said that losing you would make me flip my lid. Right? You know you laughed. I heard you laugh. You laughed, you laughed, and laughed, and then you left. But now you know I'm utterly mad. And they're coming to take me away. Ha-ha, they're coming to take me away. What do people oh, think when we go from, like, a super serious-ass interview to me just, like, dancing around? Birds and basket weavers who sit and smile and twiddle their Physicist, yeah, not physics. Physicist, yeah, you're right. I cooked your food, I cleaned your house, and this is how you pay me back for all my kind, unselfish, loving deeds. JS theme. Well, you just wait. They'll find you yet, and when they do, they'll put you in the ASPCA, you mangy mutt. You're tripping out seeing my ribcage? Yeah, you're not the only one. They're coming to take me away. They're coming to take me away. I was feeling last night, and I was like, damn, those are my ribs. And my hip. And I'll be happy oh, to see those nice young men in their clean white coats And they're coming to take me away <laughs> I haven't seen those in a while home with trees and flowers and chirping birds And basket weavers who sit and smile and twiddle their thumbs and Yeah, I was literally, I was like, oh, that's my, those are my ribs What the fuck? I'm not kidding Dot, 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 thank you I saw your uh, complimentary comments during the interview Y'all were busy arguing about his books at first. And I was like, okay, I'm going to step in here and say something. It's getting... <laughs> Nobody thought the books were fake. I don't think. I mean, he's a really smart guy. Yeah, that's true, Nakodi. Very true. I mean, he's a really smart guy. He's been around for a while. He's got a good library, right? Like, I mean, you know, a lot of people still... I'm sure he's one of these people prefer physical books. Not that you can't read ebooks; he's got some too. But you know, a lot of people like physical books, especially somebody's been collecting them his whole life. Uh, so nobody thought that that was a green screen. I shouldn't have even mentioned that, but there was a super chat about it that I didn't see until later. <laughs> you actually asked him to go pick one up, and I was like, I didn't want to make him get up to pick up a book that I knew was real, but I did mention it. I did get it in there, so. We are 106 away from the goal. If you enjoyed the interview, we got another big interview coming up on Tuesday. If you enjoy the show, that's what keeps the show running. And I wish that my overhead wasn't as high as it is, but uh, I have people coming at me from all angles, legally and otherwise. Um, and that ain't going to stop, unfortunately. So 
the way to answer that is sobriety, for one. Save your money on that and stay sharp. And for two, kill it on this show and get as many good interviews, as many good debates, as many good segments, as many good stories. We had the exclusive JF stuff earlier. Um, so that's the that's the answer to that. And so that's what I've been focused on. You know, a lot of stuff I can't control. A lot of stuff I fucked up. You know, you can't do anything about that. You just have to turn turn the wheel around and uh, focus on the things you can control, which is myself, um, how I comport myself, how we do on this show, and those sorts of things. And I think it's been pretty good. We got a big guest coming up on Tuesday, um, just as big as this one, talking about a topic I think that you'll be interested in. I'll give you a tease. I'm not going to give it away. Because like I said, they're even targeting the guests. So uh, I ain't going to give it away. Yeah, the Biltmore in Asheville is pretty cool. Thank you. Mr. Mo sent $15. The man's a fountain of knowledge with a very cautious and wise approach to every subject he chooses. Starts with, oh, I went along with the official narrative at first, then proceeds to dismantle it to the ground. Comely. Damn good stuff. I agree with that. You noticed that too. Well, I used to agree with it, but chop it down. You noticed that too, huh? Yeah, I think we could probably get Ramsey. He's been really nice to me. And he's on Rumble. Oh, and hit like. If you look like that, do you know what people think about you?